the West Coast, the East Coast, and deep in the heart of Texas, it's the Geek at Arms podcast with Brian, Mike, and James. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the Geek at Arms podcast, a podcast about three guys who share a lot of geeky hobbies and also a love for the Lord our God. I'm James, and hanging out with me, as always, are my buds, Mike and Brian. Gentlemen, how are you doing today? Fat and happy. More the former than the latter, but a little bit of both. Never has a statement both resounded with me and angered me at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) i'm in that statement and i'm angry about it anyway mike how are you i am doing pretty well doing pretty well good it's been a crazy month for myself it's kind of been one thing after the other not been a bad month just once it'll be done i'm just gonna just kind of blink and say okay that was a thing i'm glad it's over but wow and we'll move on Look, an asteroid hasn't hit us. It's 2020. Let's count our blessings. Amen to that. (laughs) So uh, let us jump into Geek Out, and I will start it off because it's been a crazy month, but geek-wise for me, it's been a busy month. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, like pretty much every other person in the U.S., I was watching the official recording of the musical Hamilton when it appeared on Disney+. Plus. Now, I have always been, since 6th, 7th grade, a big music theater geek. I, I love it. I was first exposed to Phantom of the Opera around then, and I've had a deep love for them. Uh, I've performed in some. I've seen Phantom of the Opera in Kansas City, Asalem Miserable on Broadway, And my first year of college, I was actually a music theater major. Simply put, I'm a fan. Hamilton completely changed my perspective on what a musical could be. Uh, Have either one of you two seen it yet? Nope. Uh, Do you mean on stage or on TV? The answer to both is yes. Okay. So I'm going to assume you are a fan as well. I mean, it is phenomenal work. I mean, I'm I'm not going to deny that. Like, am I? I used to be a big musical fan when I was in high school and into college, and then I just kind of fell off the musical train. I I had a few that I that I still liked, and I I went to go see Les Misérables again when I was in grad school. But I actually was I appreciated Hamilton, but I wasn't planning on spending you know the lots of dollars it would take to go until my daughter just absolutely fell in love with it. And then we had somebody drop some fire sale tickets on us. And we went up to, we we went, we went up to see it. We were in the back row. We were nearly hit by a low flying aircraft, but I don't care. It was good. (laughs) (laughs) See Hamilton, it's been on my radar since it came out in 2015. It was even supposed to tour in Texas. Joy and I talked about going to see it. She really wanted to. Um, I decided against it because I didn't feel that, Taking out a second mortgage to finance tickets was a smart idea. <laughs> and anyway, yeah. the tour ended up getting canceled because of COVID. But I was more than happy to watch it when it came out. And uh, like I said, it, it changed how I viewed what a musical should be. Because my expectations of how a musical should look and sound and how it should be structured was always very heavily influenced, I guess, by what I would call traditional styles of music theater great creators of before, like Andrew Lloyd Webber, Rodgers and Hammerstein, Leonard Bernstein, and and many more. And Move out of the way, fellas. Yes, yeah, seriously. 
there, I thought there's no way you could cram the entire adult lifetime of a founding father into two hours and 40 minute experience. I'm like, it's, it's not going to happen. Lin-Manuel Miranda pulled it off and pulled it off with panache. It was incredibly tight storytelling. Looking back at it now, I've watched more clips of it on Disney Plus on YouTube. The sheer amount of words that are being thrown at the screen, it's, it's mind-boggling. I mean, I'm glad I saw it on the screen first because there were times Joy and I would just pause it to just try to absorb what was just mm-hmm. sung at us. This is a musical you have to give your complete attention to, which is easy, though, because the music's outstanding. I mean, the way it blends hip-hop, jazz, R&B, and show tunes all together, it's been fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Just out of curiosity, Mike, what was your favorite song from it? I really can't say. I mean, there is just so much that is good in there that to, mm-hmm. to, try, to, try, to pick, uh, try to pick one thing, I don't know. I mean, I'm more impressed with individual moments than I am with a particular song in the score i mean it's an impressive score so um i know it's it, it's cheap to say oh i don't know all of them but you know i mean it's <laughs> it's i mean it, it's not quite there but i mean there's there's so much good um it, there is so much I, good so much beneath the surface too that you don't realize without multiple viewings i, I understand completely what you're saying for me the song wait for it just stands out a little bit higher because mm. I don't know, just, just the way it's sung, uh, the style of it, the score, it just stood out to me. And uh, that, and pretty much any time King George was on the stage. Absolutely. You know, I, I take it back. Any, you know, what is my favorite? Any time King George was on the stage, completely um, agree. And do you know what? I have to say that I was, I, I found it remarkable the differences in the performances that they were giving on on Disney Plus, and and what was my experience. It is completely counterintuitive to me, and I cannot explain it. But from the absolute back row, it seemed like there was even more subtlety to the performance given by the actor on stage. Just the shimmy of his shoulders, just the the position of his head, the, the way that the glimmer and the glitz from his regalia caught the light and threw it back to the top row. It gave just something really special to this person who was clearly over the top, but in sort of a relishing sort of way. And it was delicious. It was just a touch <laughs> mad. And uh, <laughs> yes. It, yeah. I mean, and it was a different sort of madness than what was portrayed on screen. Just and, slightly unhinged was my first thought. Yeah. I thought it was a great example of doing a lot with very little. Uh, he, and it was funny because my wife, who has not seen the stage production, much to her going green with envy, since I had to take my daughter since she was out of town. I did not cry at this opportunity. And, you know, it, it, she says, wow, he seems to be playing this relatively straight compared to how I imagined. And I'm like, yeah, compared to the performance that I saw on stage, the, the screen production did seem to play it pretty straight. But it's also the fact that they're, they know what they're doing for television, that this production on Disney plus was blocked and shot and performed knowing what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Like, like there wasn't an audience that they were, that they were talking to. They were talking to the cameras, which is the right call when you're filming a stage production. And this is one of the better filmed Mm -hmm. uh, stage productions I've seen. 
the one thing that I that I felt like I missed when I was watching the Disney Plus production was how much the choreography of the set pieces moving in and out was a part of the production because they would they would dance the tables and chairs into position and mm-hmm. dance them out so nobody was ever just carrying something and just placing something on stage it was all just beautifully folded in mm-hmm. to the choreography and i felt like some of that pulling back and larger scale stuff was lost because it had to be because you're using cameras yeah and there were times that the cameras needed to be focused on a certain person, a certain group of people for a song. And like you said, this was a, probably the best film portrayal of a musical in this manner. Um, it's never going to be perfect, but I think that this is, you know, until another one comes along that proves me wrong, this is going to be as good as it gets. They made decisions that were right for the medium. Mm-hmm. And I stand by that. Agreed. So uh, if you have Disney Plus friends and you haven't checked out Hamilton, square yourself out about three hours of your day and go check it out. Do that instead of this next thing I'm going to mention, which Mm -hmm. is on Netflix, I checked out the series The Letter for the King. It's a Netflix fantasy series that was kind of being uh, packaged as supposedly could be enjoyed by younger people as well as adults. It's based on a novel by a Dutch writer. I'm going to try not to butcher the name, Tonke Dracht. It was published in 1962, and it became one of the Netherlands' most beloved books for young adults. Uh, Before the Netflix series, there was a musical based on it and a Dutch movie that was released in 2008. It focuses on a young man named Turi, who, bumbling as he is, uh, is set to undergo a vigil for becoming a knight with a group of other 16-year-olds. Of course, because the story, that gets interrupted, and he ends up on a quest to deliver a letter to the king with the fate of the kingdom hanging in the balance. There are some definite positives in this series. The characters and the locations do a great job of drawing you into the story. It is filmed in New Zealand and Prague, so of course it's going to be gorgeous. Really nice music. There were many times I found myself enjoying the score just as much as I was enjoying what was happening on the screen. Thankfully, unlike a lot of other fantasy series, I did not hate the weapons and armor. Uh, The swords were were good. The spears looked nice. The shields were used as shields were supposed to be used. And there was even a scene of a a practice yard where a lot of these youngsters fighting against each other, and they were wearing gambesons. And they were believable gambesons. They looked like they'd been used and sweated in and worn all the time. And they were practical looking. Like I, I loved that. It's a short series. Six episodes, the first four were decently done. Without giving away really any spoilers, the final two episodes contain some really questionable plot twists that left a really bad taste in our mouths. There was a Chosen One prophecy subplot throughout the entire thing that I found out afterwards was inserted by the screenwriter that was not in the original book. It was added in for extra drama and also to include magic which was not in the original book either. Oh, so Chosen One, last two episodes. Okay, did Snape kill Dumbledore in this too, or <laughs> You're not that far off. And just like how Snape killing Dumbledore was not received well by the magic community or the reading community, the people in the Netherlands who grew up reading this book did not like what Netflix did to the series. And after watching it, I can understand why. So, if you want to check out Letter for the King, it's okay. 
I'm glad I did not let my kids watch this with me because there were a few moments that were pretty intense. I'm, I would have had to have turned it off and send the kids away or just turned it off and watched something else with them. So it's not for kids. It's not Game of Thrones for kids at all, like some people were saying it was. It's its own thing. Um, without giving away spoilers, be prepared. Uh, and finally, I had another book that I picked up off the Kindle that I was going to talk about. And then the Dresden Files came out, and I kicked that one to the yes. curb. <laughs> it's the first book that we've seen from Jim Butcher in five years, where before uh, he was consistently churning them out annually since 2000. I downloaded it on, when it came out on the Kindle on July 14th, the day of its release. I finished it the night of the 15th. Yeah, I tried to to savor it, to, to go through it slowly and really enjoy it, because I knew that Oh, this is the first one in so long, and it only took me two days also. <laughs> it's like, I look down at the, the things at 93%. No. The exact it, same thing happened done. to me. <laughs> at the end of the first day, I'm like, man, this is such a good book. And I look down, I'm like, 54% done. I should slow down. <laughs> and I didn't. Well, I will say this. Joy, she grabbed it for her Kindle as well. We have like the whole household sharing thing. Mm-hmm. And we decided that the next day we would have a reading lunch date. Uh, it was actually a nice day, uh, not too hot. So we went to a local Mexican restaurant, sat out on the patio under some shade, got drinks, chips and queso, got another appetizer, ate snack food, and read Dresden. Drinking at a shady Mexican place. Okay, gotcha. All right. <laughs> yep, that's exactly what it was. <laughs> <laughs> My only complaint was the, the loud mariachi music being piped through the speakers. But then I decided, you know what? <laughs> I feel like that if Harry Dresden were here in person, he'd appreciate it. <laughs> but uh, I thoroughly enjoy jumping back into the Dresden verse. And I really want to be careful about describing my likes and dislikes because this book is so new, I want to avoid any spoilers. Likes, once again, we get that wonderful Dresden trope of multiple problems piling one on top of the other in a short span of time. Does it suck for him? Oh, yes, but it's so much fun for the reader. Loved the scenes of Harry with his daughter, Maggie. And it was nice to see that his relationship with Murphy has been progressing from book to book. I mean, it's literally been a roller coaster with those two. And now that they actually are in a relationship, it's kind of a payoff. And I liked it. It seemed real. Uh, for the most part, the book avoided explaining plot points to the readers that have already been explained time and time again in every single book about how magic works, who the White Council are, the background even of his dog and why his dog is special. <laughs> it does that a little bit here and there, but it's not as egregious as it's been in other books. I think that, you know, Jim's realized, if you're reading book 16, you know what's going on. Right. Yeah. Uh, so he doesn't explain how Quidditch works again. Okay, great. Yes. Because <laughs> it's all the same universe. Uh, dislikes. Don't think I've mentioned the name of the book yet. The book is called Peace Talks. And much of the peace talks themselves, they kind of felt like a missed opportunity, narratively speaking. I felt like more could have been done considering the the players, the, the importance of the people who are attending this event. Um, like real peace talks. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, I was really hoping for a little bit more insight into some of those factions because there's some of them that we hadn't seen much of. Mm-hmm. That, that show up and like, oh, we finally get to see some of their internal politics. And no, they're just set dressing. <laughs> they really are. And like I said, I was kind of saddened by that. And 
for something that was supposed to be a major centerpiece for the book, it felt like background. Mm-hmm. It felt like just something that was going on while Harry goes on with his with his main story. When I felt like it should have been a little more vice versa. But anyway, don't want to get too deep into it. Uh, once again, we find that the White Council doesn't trust Harry plot, rears its head. I know there's been stuff that's happened in the past books to give them reason to, but honestly, this has a, been a repeating theme since book one, and it's starting to feel kind of cliche. Either they do or they don't. Either you're, he's in or just cut his head off like you've been threatening to do since the first book. No more in between. And uh, finally, there is a major relationship of Harry's that just starts to go downhill. I mean, it goes downhill fast as this book goes, and they don't really give you an explanation for the reason for it. I don't know if that's entirely true. We get the reason for it, but it's not really explained as thoroughly as we would like. That's fair. But I felt like his attitude towards Harry had changed from prior books. Yeah. And he, he gives us a reason in the books for why he's acting this way. But if he's this passionate about it, then it should have come up before. Because it really feels yeah, like it the character... Yeah, would have been nice to get yeah, cha- better feel, foreshadowing. Yeah, it feels like his attitude and how he views Harry's changed in a dime. Because he's suddenly went from someone who trusts Harry to being kind of dismissive towards him and and thinking that, oh, you don't really know how the world works. You you haven't seen anything. And I'm like, oh, that's no, that's not true. And you should know that. But anyway, this whole podcast could be just me and you discussing the finer points of this <laughs> book, Brian. Um, it's really hard to do it without giving any spoilers, though. Yeah. <laughs> so after finishing up the book, I was surprised how short it was. In truth, it really does feel like half of a story. Now, I know the next one, Battleground, is coming out in September, and that's really is going to be part two of the book. I think Butcher even said in an interview that what he wrote was a really huge story, which he decided to split up into two novels. Whether or not I think that was the right call to make, uh, whether it does a disservice to both novels to split them up, I don't know. I'll have to wait, and I'll have a better idea of whether it's the right idea or not after reading the next one. I'm sure I Tolkien think- knows how that feels. <laughs> and Robert Jordan. I mean, really? Yeah. Yeah. I think what bothered me, I would have been a lot happier with the wrap-up if we had gotten at least a resolution of the instigating mystery. And I don't know how important that's going to be in the second half of it, so maybe it's like, oh, well, obviously, no, we couldn't wrap that up. But mm-hmm. it just felt like there wasn't any actual resolution. And if we'd gotten resolution of just that, then I'd have been happy to, to say, okay, that was a complete book. Yeah. All that happened to it in reality was essentially a narrative band-aid was put on it. Yeah. But looking at his past books, Butcher does have a a tendency to, I'm going to draw this out, going to draw all these disparate plot lines, and everything's going to be resolved right at the end. Boom, boom, boom. ABC on top. pages. Exactly. (laughs) So it's nice to see he's keeping to form. But anyway, that's going to be my geek out. Who wants to go next? Uh, I think that I rolled next to highest in initiative, so uh, I'll go ahead and go. <laughs> uh, my geek out is really actually kind of kind of rolling back to something pretty old. Uh, do either of you have either of you ever played the Star Wars miniatures war game from Wizards of the Coast? Once, and it was actually with you. Oh. I played it a couple of times. I, th- I played it once with my brother a couple years back. Now, is this the one with the individual? people figures or is this the one with the ships uh they do have one with ships but that one was widely poorly received 
Okay. Uh, and it's, it's the one where they sold like little miniatures that were, they kind of doubled as, here, you can use these as role-playing minis, and also we have this wonderful battle game that you can play. Or we have this wonderful battle game you can play. And uh, did you also hear of our role-playing game? So it, <laughs> they were two products that kind of fed into each other. It was a, it was one of those things where they sell you a, a starter pack and then, you know, anything with a starter pack has Danger Will Robinson written all over it because then they're going to have randomized booster packs to go along with it. And that's where you start to go downhill. And I think that's the exact reason why I didn't jump too deeply into that. I learned that lesson with the Battletech hero clicks and that uh, if I buy the starter pack, mistakes are going to be made and they're going to be made <laughs> repeatedly over the course of many months. So, yeah. This is kind of a legacy of my mistakes uh, because for years, my daughter thought that this trunk full of little tackle boxes that had all these various factions and figures in them was for role-playing purposes only because that's the only time she'd seen them pulled out is we pull out a battle map, we pull out the RP, uh, the RP minis, and then we go. And I had been... <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I'm no. I'm picturing that day comes when your daughter opens up a tackle box and there's actual fishing stuff in it. She's gonna be like, "What is this, Dad? There's something weird in the miniatures box." This is for right. Call of Cthulhu. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I close my geek out there. There's no. There's no better way. <laughs> yeah. No, but please well, continue. On Father's Day, I I kind of I. I kind of used the leverage of Father's Day, like, hey, sweetheart, would you play a, you know, a battle with me with Star Wars minis? And she thought that I was talking about Star Wars Epic Duels, which is another board game that was, that was a tactical, with huge air quotes, tactical um, battle game that was, you know, tie in with the movies at the time. And she's like, oh, cool, but no thanks for a while when she thought this is what it was. It's like, okay, it's Father's Day. I'll play this with you. And then so I pull out the binder full of stat cards and I put together a squad and she's looking at what's happening. She's like, whoa, 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 whoa. What, what is this? It's like, oh, what you do is you have all of these little stat cards that correspond to these minis. Like, you're role-playing minis? Like, yes, I do use them for role-playing, but they're tied in with this game. And they have these effects that modify each other and you try to build synergy and try to build a good squad and match it up with somebody else's squad. And so I gave her a hundred point squad and I, I put together a 75 point squad. So it would, there would be a handicap built in. And so we played and she was, she was like, Oh my gosh, dad, why didn't you have me play this years ago? I'm like, I really kind of wanted to child. And so uh, <laughs> I, I think that, we were fighting for about three hours on, on Father's Day, and we've been fighting ever since. So with my youngest daughter, it's been fighting, fighting, fighting ever since Father's Day. That's how my quarantine's going. No, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's great because she'll, she'll say, ooh, I think I got a really great idea for a squad. And then she'll go and she'll look at my binder and she'll make notes. And so it, it's been a lot of fun with what, with what has been a dead game. But it, uh, it's one of those things that I, I knew that once she had this idea of how to work with a system and how to build a system that sort of feeds off of itself and how to get the most bang for your buck in your point build, that this would just light up all the areas of her brain that really get her excited. 
So my only favor for you guys is please do not tell this girl about Magic the Gathering or I am going to lose her. (laughs) (laughs) We didn't plan that, but dang, was that good. (laughs) (laughs) So what's your address again? (laughs) Uh, It is 555 Go Jump in the Lake Avenue. Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> Somebody's getting some booster packs. <laughs> oh, well, okay. I mean, if you've got booster packs, then I've got, wait, minis or magic. <laughs> Actually, that's, that's it for my geek out. I'm keeping it tight because we have got a lot to talk about later. So, Brian, <laughs> All right. on to you. That leaves it to me. Okay, well, I mentioned last time the show Cloak and Dagger. I'm still working my way through the MCU. And as much as I was enjoying... Um, Runaways, Cloak and Dagger is even better. Really? Yeah, mm. it's a, it's a really nice, emotionally rich show. Uh, the characterization of the well, first, let me give you some a description of what the show is about. Uh, these two kids are uh, given superpowers due to an industrial accident. Um, an oil rig, a supposed oil rig, blows up, uh, and they both wind up. Uh, in the water one of them his uh, tyrone's older brother is shot by a police officer and falls in the water and he jumps in to try and save him and the girl is in a car with her dad and when the thing blows up he goes off the bridge and they wind up on the water uh and they rescue one another and then years later when they're teenagers they encounter running each other again and that what that's what causes their powers to wake up tyrone's got this darkness thing going where he he teleports in a cloud of smoke and when he touches people he learns about their their deepest fears and uh tandy uh makes these knives of light and when she touches somebody she learns about their hopes but their their personalities tyrone is the model student athlete really put together but he's got this rage inside of him because of the the mistreatment of his brother Tandy is a drug addict and homeless, but she's the one that's all about hope. So their powers are kind of opposite of their personalities, which made some some really nice opportunities in their characterization. It's really nuanced. Both actors do just amazing work portraying the subtleties and the psychologies, and they are both messed up, but they feel really real. Their problems don't push them into becoming caricatures of teenage angst. Uh, they feel like actual real people. A lot of the show episodes end with this stylish musical montage. Uh, the music that they've chosen hasn't always been like the kind of music that I like. It tends to lean kind of heavy on, on hip-hop. But every cut's been chosen really well to match what's going on in the show and to really drive home the, the climax of the episode. There's some nods to the Netflix shows. I mentioned in Runaways had a, a tie-in to Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., and this one has tie-ins to uh, Luke Cage and the Defenders. The cop friend that they have is uh, friends with Misty Knight, uh, who showed up in Luke Cage. And it's got a lot of accidental timeliness to it, considering the current events. Uh, I think the, the show wrapped last year, and yet the, it covers the problems of systemic racism, especially the interaction between the police and black communities. Tyrone's mom 
says that he he's complaining that she thinks that he's going to do something wrong and get himself shot like his brother. And she says, no, I'm terrified that even if you do everything right, you're still going to get shot. Mm. And uh, Man. the power of those performances is, is just really, really amazing. I, I recommend the show if you can, if you can get to it. Um, I had to actually buy it on Amazon because I couldn't find it uh, free to watch anywhere. The other thing that I've been geeking out to, uh, somebody pointed out to me that uh, there was a sale on uh, great old games for some D&D properties. And it turned out there was only one game that was actually like on sale. Well, it was actually free, was which what they were trying to point out. But on sale was Neverwinter Nights. Like the really old Neverwinter Nights from like 2001 or whatever. Wow. It's like <laughs> I had so much fun playing that game years ago and I actually still have a disc but I don't have a disc drive in my computer now so I'm like <laughs> ah, for five bucks you know what I'll get a I'll get a digital only version of Neverwinter Nights it's got some extra modules with it that I didn't hadn't played before and it's still a fun game it's Bioware and it's kind of the earliest iteration maybe not the earliest but at least pretty close to their standard plot formula that they've used in KOTOR and Mass Effect where you go to several locations, but you can visit them in any order, and you've got some companions that you've got to do side quests for, and when you get done with the side quest, they give you some perk. But it doesn't feel quite as... It uses the, the D&D 3 uh, character generation rules, so you don't feel as pigeonholed in your character. Like, Shepard is always Shepard in uh, Mass Effect. You've got the choice of Paragon or... I can't remember the other personality path. Renegade. Uh, renegade in that one and that's like the only choice it's a choice that you get but in neverwinter nights you can actually build a character uh, my current character is a uh, a sorcerer who specializes in mind magic and counter spells it's not a perfect game the mechanics get kind of clunky especially when they try to stick too closely to the D D rules like uh the sleep spell is an area of effect thing but mm. as soon as you start casting it rolls for initiative, and your companions start charging into battle. So by the time I'm done casting sleep, my rogue is already already up there, and he goes to sleep too. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, so it's not perfect. Yeah. There's some things that could be, that could be better, but it's still, a, it's still an entertaining game, and I'm enjoying playing it again. Good. And just to be clear, this is not part of a series with the, the more recent Neverwinter MMORPG. They're separate properties. And that's all I've got for my geek out. Well, that will lead us to a subject that Mike has been absolutely chomping at the bit to get to. <laughs> well, whatever do you mean? Uh, okay. Uh, oh, just we're jump talking in. About, yeah. <laughs> uh, we're talking about movie sword fights uh, this time around. And the kind of the questions of, well, what are some of the best movie sword fights and what makes them good and what makes them bad? And really, there's not such a thing as a perfect sword fight that encapsulates all of these elements. But basically, these are some ideas in terms of how do we assess what makes for these wonderful, dramatic, vivid clashes that we see on screen. And at first, when we pitched this idea to Brian, I mean, you had you kind of had a, a reaction to this idea, didn't you? Yeah, I was like, well, you know, I might stay kind of, I'm not opposed to the idea, but I might stay kind of quiet because I don't really know all that much about sword fighting. 
Yeah, I mean, and one of the things that, that if you kind listeners have been listening for any length of time, you'd know that James and I have some significant amount of study in historical fencing, mm-hmm. that we've held blades in our hand. We, we we know how steel interacts with steel. To an extent, we've studied the manuals. We have practiced with other people to see what works and what doesn't. We've got experience. We've actually fought each other a number of times. Uh, quite a few times. Yeah, I have, I have photographic evidence, and I lost that fight. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is, though, that though we've done a lot of study in particularly the Italian rapier tradition, this isn't really what makes a good movie sword fight. One of the things I'd said to Brian is, well, what, why? Historical accuracy doesn't mean that it looks good on screen. Uh, and stagecraft and cinematography is something that I know a little bit about. So <laughs> so this might actually be more in Brian's wheelhouse than it is in our wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. But there are some touch points where these two things come together. And I do want to make an emphatic point about about historical accuracy and realism. And that is people frequently ask me for RPGs or movies or games, what what is most realistic in combat? And like any other form of entertainment, what's realistic isn't really what we want. I want to be entertained. Mm-hmm. I don't like a movie sword fight because it reflects history or what you do with a real sword. You see, as... Moviegoers, when they see a sword fight, what it boils down to is they want to see the hero slash heroes with their sword going through, left through right, through the, the masses of bad guys. Doesn't matter what armor they're wearing or what weapons they have. Just one hit, that guy's dead. One hit, that guy's gone. And he makes his way to the big bad guy and defeats them with no problem. Well, I mean, that's how you kind of go through SCA tournaments. That, that is realism, James. If no. only I, I that were the case. <laughs> I don't know if that's don't, necessarily what the moviegoers want, because if, the, if it was, then Dungeon Siege would have been a great movie. <laughs> the fact that it even got made, though, tells you it's some people want that. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing, is that for your entertainment, a stage combat or a movie combat has about as much to do with what's realistic as Raiders of the Lost Ark does with a PhD in Old Testament studies. So with that as our standard, then we can kind of go forward and talk about, well, how is it that we evaluate what is a good movie sword fight? Uh, If you want more information on both movie sword fighting and historical swordsmanship, how they've been treated in the past and their relationship with each other, I really want to recommend to our listeners to go on Amazon Prime and check out the 2009 documentary Reclaiming the Blade. You can watch it for free on there, and it is a spectacular documentary. Super good. Definitely recommend. So I guess the question is, what is a real sword fight? And in in general terms, real sword fighting is the art of trying really, really, really hard not to get hit with a sword while trying really, really hard to hit the other person with a sword. And yes, those are priorities. And yes, they are in the proper order. Does it matter what type of sword fighting you're doing? I fight in the SCA, and that's the rule for heavy armored combat. That's the rule for cut and thrust and for rapier. A good friend of mine and fellow rapier fighter, uh, he is now a white scarf. His name is Don Andreas. He published online his rules for fencing, just tips and advice that he picked up over the years. Number one is the pointy end goes into the other guy. Number two, the other guy does not get a turn. 
<laughs> you think about that and like, wow, that is actually really good advice, and more people need to understand that. Yeah. As far as we can tell, you know, what was real, I mean, in terms of street fights, was like, just finish it fast. Like, don't, mm-hmm. don't get hit, finish this out. Uh, by contrast, generally speaking, in stage and movie swordplay, it is the art of trying really, really hard not to hit the other person while making it look like you're trying really, really hard to hit the other person. Mm-hmm. And while simultaneously trying to make it comprehensible to the audience. And that is, that is, because it really is about the audience experience. And I'll say this, I've attended some stage fighting classes, and it is a very different skill set from what we do in historical swordsmanship, and it is harder than it looks. Mm -hmm. It's a whole separate area of blocking, and there's a reason that it is focused on in its own classes and workshops and practice so hard. I mean, you have to make the audience think, you are going to kill that other person, while simultaneously making sure that that will never, ever be the outcome. There's a technical term that you use there, blocking. That is the positioning... uh, on the stage or screen of an actor. Yes. Or prop, I suppose. And it's so important. You said the positioning of an actor or a prop. I'll share this story very quickly. I was in college. I was taking a, a workshop. Uh, one was a Shakespeare class, and the other one was a stage combat class with the same group of teachers. And they shared with us that they were doing a, a long time ago, they were doing a production of Taming of the Shrew. And in one scene, an actress has a dagger in her hand. She has it in a reverse grip with the tip pointed down, and she's angry. She's making a stabbing motion with every other word she's screaming. And the other actor is supposed to walk across, grab her arm, and pluck the dagger out of her hand. Well, the problem was they blocked it out. They got their positioning down where she was supposed to stand, which foot was supposed to be forward. And the same Uh-oh. for him. Which foot he was supposed to be lead with, how many steps, grab, yank. He kept messing it up because he kept leading with the wrong foot, which meant instead mm-hmm. of grabbing her hand, he ended up getting it underneath her hand. And they practiced it with a piece of cardboard. Finally, oh, dress rehearsal, <laughs> they got it right. Well, there's a problem with that. And it's the same with fighting, the same with blocking. Don't oh, practice no. it until you get it going. right. Practice it until you can't get it wrong. Mm-hmm. Well, by practicing it until you get it right in the dress rehearsal, you've set yourself up for a problem, and that's what happened. The first performance is happening. They're in the scene. They're emotional. I mean, you're supercharged when you're underneath those lights in front of an audience. Emotions are at a high. She is screaming at him, yelling at him, the scene is great. And instead of a piece of cardboard, she's got a steel dagger, and he sets off with the wrong foot like he's done dozens of times. He reaches out with the wrong hand. Her hand comes down. The tip of the dagger goes into the top of his index finger, out the bottom, into the top of the next oh. finger, out the bottom, into the top of the third finger, and sticks into the bone. She pulls her hand back. The dagger stays in his hand. Oh, my. Uh. He looks down. His eyes go wide. She looks down. Her eyes go wide. He puts the hand behind his back, and he finishes the scene. Oh, my gosh. He he gets backstage where the uh, stage manager is there with the first aid kit. (laughs) You're going to need second or third aid, buddy. He's like, he looks at it, (laughs) yanks the dagger out, wraps the hand in a ball of gauze. They finish the play, 
and instead of going out for a curtain call, he is out into the car with, with the director behind the wheel, and they're on their way to the emergency room. Oh, my gosh. The story didn't come secondhand. One of the teachers who was teaching the class showed us the scars on his fingers. I'll say it again, because this point is going to be coming up again about practicing. Yeah. Don't practice until you get it right. Practice until you can't get it wrong. Steering the conversation sharply away from blood, um, <laughs> real blood. Stage blood is great. Stage blood, all about stage blood and everything. You know, great. Yeah, that's something that I also tell all of my all of my public speaking students when I was teaching is, yeah, practice it right a dozen times because that's when that's when it's good. So we'll we'll get back on to practicing a little bit later. Really, I think the question that we have before us is what makes a good sword fight? I, I put this out in Twitter and said, so what are some of your favorite movie sword fights? And Infinity Bros chimed in and they had said that the duel of fates was the best lightsaber fight ever and so i asked the question so what what does best mean what what is a good sword fight and we're, we're going to be tackling just a few a few items that we've kind of distilled down as to what is it that makes a good movie sword fight because mm-hmm. there's no one single thing you can't point oh like well that one had a that one had a great great choreography this one had a great story behind it great reason for fighting well those guys have cool looking swords those guys have great armor any one thing can add to a sword fight but any one of them doesn't make a great sword fight by themselves yeah and even the ones that are great i don't think get perfect in all these elements no so we'll have some that will come up as a great example and then maybe later come up as a poor example so don't be surprised or offended if your your favorite movie sword fight, and by that we mean The Princess Bride, ever comes up in a list of maybe this wasn't, oh, that's, wasn't the best. Mike, let's not disparage uh, The Princess Bride, okay? I mean, there's a shortage of perfect movies in the world. It'd be a shame to ruin this one. I, I fully agree. All right. Side note, uh, I'm going to first... interject this real quickly. Last night, my family watched uh, The Princess Bride, and it was my daughter's first time watching it. Oh, my Aww. gosh. Fabulous movie. Mm-hmm. Best personal opinion best movie sword fight anyway um we'll get into that and i know that's the gauntlet has been thrown you can argue with me at twitter i you know i i, I welcome your opinion you can send your um, comments and hatred to mike at geek at arms.com <laughs> hey hey if somebody gets fired up enough to say hey no this movie sword fight was better then i'll call it mission accomplished so that's mm. fine all right the first element that we should talk about is the sword fight being an extension of the drama like you, Mike, I'm sure both of us have, I won't say scoured, but we've looked through a lot of YouTube videos on historical sword fights, uh, people who have uh, taken historical manuals and blocked out their own uh, sword fighting routines or fan films and more. And while some of them have been really cool to look at, visually stunning and dynamic in their fighting, it's only skin deep. We don't know who these people are. We don't know why they're fighting, what the cause is. And it's visually appealing. It looks great. But really, it's just a, a martial exercise. Yeah. And I, I think that as much as we can appreciate what they do well with that, a stunt routine without a story is not in mm-hmm. itself a terribly exciting thing. Yeah. It's not going to stick in your head the way that the sword fight in Pirates of the Caribbean does, because that movie 
is an extension of the drama and an extension of the character development. Yes. I think that's my favorite scene in that entire first movie, that fight between Will Turner and Jack Sparrow in his blacksmith shop. So well yeah. done. It, a, it's well done for a number of reasons. So one of the things that it does is that's how we get to learn more about Sparrow and Turner. We get to see in the course of the fight or in leading up to the fight that Turner is observant. He's clever. He has a strong sense of honor and justice. And we get to see that Sparrow is cunning. He's manipulative. He's deceptive. And the really cool thing in that, he cares about something more deeply than winning this fight. Yeah. Is that he pulls his gun and he's got the pistol and Will says, you cheated. He's like, pirate? Like, First of all, that's great. Yeah. I mean, that's great. <laughs> well, he cares you, about winning the fight. I love that you mentioned that he cares about something more than the fight because I love the line, the depth behind it when he said, this shot is not meant for you. Bingo. And the look on Will Turner's face was exactly the look on our face. It was like, wait, what? Yeah. I do need to point out one thing that at that time and still does at times was annoyed me so much about the fight was that when... Jack realizes that Will's, okay, Will's got some skill. You know, okay, you're not bad, but how is your footwork? And then he crosses, crosses his, his foot in front of the other. Now, except for a very minuscule pages in certain historical manuscripts, that's not good footwork. And I say that <laughs> as someone who, in the early days of being taught fencing, I was taught footwork, and I was taught it as this is your foundation for fighting. And that's something I would teach students who learned under me. I would tell them, learn your footwork. Learn the way your foot needs to move, the way your body moves, so that no matter where you move on the field, you always know where your feet are and the proper position for them to be in. You get these fundamentals down. You get this foundation down. It's going to save your life more than any cool tips and tricks that anyone else can teach you. If you're learning your tips and tricks in your footwork from, from movies, you're already dead and failing history <laughs> and science anyway. Yes. So it was a beautiful shot, and I think it was right. And I feel oh. bad for nitpicking that little moment in what is otherwise a very entertaining scene. It's the hardcore rapier fighter in me that does that. <laughs> And it's been a, a, a good long time since I've watched Pirates, uh, so I may be off base on this, but it's possible, Sparrow being who he is, that he was just being kind of ironical. I mean, it seems to me that it'd be in character for him to say, oh, well, you should watch your footwork and then deliberately do something incorrect to kind of goad his opponent about the, the very same thing that he's now doing. Mm-hmm. It would be in character. I don't know if that's the case or not. Like I said, it's been a long time since I saw it. <laughs> In this case, I could see him trying it and Will turn to looking at him going, that's not right. That's stupid. You're stupid. <laughs> so other movies that are, that are just right with their dramatic elements. Um, Princess Bride. It's right there. The dialogue for this fight it's is as sharp so as the swords. Wonderful. It really is. This is one of the only scenes that my boys, they had no interest in watching the movie, so we set them up at the table with a different show. Once the swords came out and you start hearing the ching, 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 suddenly, <laughs> whatever they were watching on the tablet was forgotten, and they were watching the TV. I mean, it was fabulously choreographed, which we'll come to later, but there's something absolutely wonderful about these two people who have acknowledged that they are going to try to kill each other, and they're admiring the lethal ability of the other party and yes. bantering about it as though it was norm- as normal as commenting on the weather. And 
it was it without that sort of delicious dialogue and the tone that they said in it. You are the movie wonderful. Just would not be the thing. I'll have to be after Thank twenty you, years. <laughs> and I, I will say this is another side note, but the fact that they are referencing actual historical fencing masters really lights up one of the nerd parts of my brain. Like yeah. I, I have Capoferro's manual. I have Tybalt's manual. I have Agrippa's manual. Benetti never wrote a manual, but, mm-hmm. you know, we know of. No. But Unless he studied his Agrippa, which I have. <laughs> which I have. And Ken Monshine's translation of that is absolutely yes. wonderful. Read it just for the introduction. Anyway, said that before. <laughs> but anyway, we're not talking about history. We're not talking about history. We're not I, talking about I think history. my favorite line in that was after Inigo has been defeated. He's like, kill me quickly. And Wesley says, I would much rather smash a stained glass window than an artist like yourself. It shows the regard that these two gentlemen have for each other and the skill they possess. And it illustrates that the man in black is not the ruthless, uh, murderous pirate that everybody thinks that he is. Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah. So just fantastic character development. But drama is more than just character development. Let's talk about The Empire Strikes Back should always talk about the empire strikes back <laughs> absolutely in the empire strikes back this is a sword fight that that is pretty much destined to yeah. happen we knew a sword fight was going to happen between darth vader and luke pretty much the moment luke got his lightsaber in the first movie the minute story details aside like these two have trajectories that say showdown all over it well up to that point when only three people in the galaxy have lightsabers and one's dead, you know what's <laughs> going to happen between those last two. Yeah, I'm not carrying this thing for nothing. Yeah. A kind of a, the antithesis of using a sword fight for a dramatic purpose is, I, I would say, in the 2004 cinematic Crapple Pie entitled Phantom <laughs> of the Opera. In the stage play, the protagonist and her romantic attache run into the Phantom at her father's grave. And, uh, James, you said that you saw this on stage. Do you remember that scene when they're at the grave? What what happened there? You know, it's, it's very murky. It's very... It's what you would typically think a creepy, spooky graveyard should be. And of course, a literal and figurative phantom rises up and he has a staff. I forget. Does the staff have a skull on it? Mm-hmm. And it's literally shooting fireballs at the hero. Okay, so... Can we deal with this guy? No, because at this point, no. he's not real. He is a force of nature. He is a phantasmagorical evil that you can only hope to survive and get away from than defeat. Okay. So, by contrast, in the film, when we have this scene, they decide that what they're going to do is have a sword fight. Cool. Absolutely love sword fight. But the director really didn't seem to understand that in this moment... He was establishing the Phantom's character. In in the way that it played out, Raoul defeats the Phantom, breaks his sword, and has the Phantom on the ground. And then Christine and Raoul leave. So Here's how forgettable it was. I've seen the movie. I forgot there was a sword fight. (laughs) And, And... it's because it doesn't do anything. Well, no. no, it does do something. It establishes that if you ever run into the problem of the Phantom again, don't worry. Raul's got a sword. He can take care of this. You do not need to fear this guy yeah. for the rest of the film. Which is, he an, is a man. an incredible missed opportunity. Brian? Yes? You're the one to ask. Would it have been hard for the studio to put in a special effect of a skull-top <laughs> staff shooting fireballs? 
Is that uh, <laughs> they did it on the stage play? So I mean, I'm going to assume that maybe they could have rigged something up for the movie. I don't know. I don't know anything about movie effects. Could that have been a possibility? Well, it would have cost them something. So did Where? a broken sword and hiring a stuntman. <laughs> <laughs> And actually, that's kind of weird because usually that's the sort of thing where they say, oh, well, we can hire a stuntman and it would cost us $600 a day or whatever a stuntman costs. Or we can put this off and put it in the post-production budget and have it be magic. And usually most productions would say, oh, yeah, magic, put it in post. Mm-hmm. Let's it, not pay for it now. We can pay three times as much for it later. <laughs> that makes sense. Fine. You want to give him a sword? Another missed opportunity. He's a larger-than-life figure. Give him a larger-than-life sword. Make him a behemoth with it. But I'm assuming they gave him a sword that was comparable to the type of sword the hero had, like a rapier or a small sword. Well, it, it did have a skull on on the knuckle guard. Oh, for so, crying out loud. I mean, clearly, clearly, <laughs> this is... I don't know what I'm talking about. Anyway. The, 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 the sword fight was so bad, it's derailed the podcast. All right, there we go. Yeah. All right, so let's get on to another Phantom. The Phantom Menace. Now, this is an extremely well-choreographed and well-rehearsed fight. But if you turn the volume off, I mean, or if you turn the visuals off, and all you do is listen to the Phantom Menace, it's... First of all, okay. Well, we all the have the soundtrack, so we all amazing. do that. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. The Duel of Fates was an amazing track in the sound of, in terms of sound. But it's not anywhere the same in terms of development of plot and drama if you turn the visuals off and just listen to episode five. Because there is so much that is happening and changing and developing during The Empire Strikes Back. And by contrast, in The Phantom Menace, nothing really happens with the characters until suddenly one of them dies. Now, we do get a little bit of character development in uh, Obi-Wan's reaction. Actually, the the contrast between Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon's reactions to being cut off from their mm-hmm. enemy. See, I thought that the movie did a good job of foreshadowing. because, But I don't know if that was worth the 10 minutes of the battle. But I think that the gravitas in, in The Phantom Menace is not is not as present as it was in The Empire Strikes Back. Now, if anyone had told me that perhaps the best thing to come out of the first new Star Wars movie in 16 years would be a musical theme with words based on an ancient Welsh poem and sung in Sanskrit, I would not have believed you. <laughs> uh, yeah, but that sounds like, if nothing else, let's assume that you had children fighting with sticks on the screen. That soundtrack is worth it. Mm-hmm. But then again, it also sounds like something exactly George Lucas would do. (laughs) All right. Kind of point number two in terms of what makes a good movie sword fight. I think that it has to build the anticipation. In order to have a good fight, the anticipation has to be built. Yeah, there's there's an ebb and a flow in in the way, particularly an action movie, where if you're heading into the big climactic scene, the big action piece, you've got to stop. And, and have a quiet moment right before that so that the, the contrast is heightened. Mm-hmm. An example of that would be what I consider to be one of the best sword fights on screen, and that is in the Fellowship of the Ring and the fight between Aragorn and the Urukai Lurts. You've just witnessed this great slow-motion sword fight, very emotionally charged between Boromir and all of these enemy combatants as he's 
desperately trying to hang on, save two hobbits, and ultimately he gets shot with arrows several times. The score behind it is forlorn and sad, and it's breaking your heart, and he's just, that's it for him. He watches the two hobbits get taken, and then everything is quiet as you see Lurtz, the leader of the Orokai, standing like five feet in front of him, this smile on his face, pulling that bow back one more time to finish the job. Everything's quiet. It's still, except for the sound of Lurtz growling. And then from right field, tackling him comes Aragorn. And you're led into another brawl of a fight, Aragorn against this huge orc. And it's, it's no pretty duel. There's no great choreography where they show their skills as swordsmen. It is a knuckle-down brawl with fists, with knives, with swords. It's, it's brutal, and it's beautiful. It's brutal, but it's not sloppy. Yes, good point. Not sloppy at but, all. Uh, the With building the anticipation there, I mean, I think that's one good way that uh, with Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, there's another thing that we see uh, oftentimes in Westerns that that we use to build the anticipation. And it's when we see the gunmen face off, their hands are over their holsters. We get a couple of different shots showing these people in their readiness, in their preparation and the tumbleweed blows by. So it, it lets that anticipation build until something instantly happens. And if you want to put this in terms of swordsmanship, empire strikes back is a wonderful example. We have, Darth Vader reveal himself and finish his line, you are not a Jedi yet. There is a full 25 seconds of screen time between that line and when the sabers touch each other. And it's because we can let the audience sit in this moment and feel the gravity before something dramatic happens. This scene, it's, it's such a well-done scene in several ways. Not only did it build anticipation so well visually it looks great yeah who knew that when they were building a carbon freezing chamber in the bowels of bespin that would also make a great set piece for a titanic duel i mean <laughs> the the engineers who built this place must be so proud yeah they're like do we need walls do we need walls in this chamber nah nah it just needs some smoke back there smoke You're, light fine. orange fine. lights everywhere just orange lights and some steps. Put the lights in the steps. Do we need that? Yes. Yes, we absolutely do. Hey, there's this OSHA code that says that we need to have a rail around this carbon freezing chamber pit. Is that is that in or no, is the, that out? The Empire <laughs> repealed that to save money. Oh, good. All right. We won't put that in. They're sending all of the handrails to the next Death Star. Don't know if they'll <laughs> arrive in time. But it's visually striking. And the way that they use the set, the steps the pit, even the hoses coming out of the ceiling, they did it all to great effect. And something else I should point out about this movie and other movies that we have mentioned is that one reason that movies like The Princess Bride, The Fellowship of the Rings, Pirates of the Caribbean, and so many more look as good as they do is because all the actors in them and many of the scenes were choreographed by Hollywood swordmaster Bob Anderson. Whom we love. We love him. The man's a legend. His scenes, are they perfect? No, absolutely not. They have many great things. They have many flaws. But sword fighting in theater would not be where it is without him. And, and as a matter of fact, he's actually in the Darth Vader suit for Empire, yep. which was, was a solid call because mm -hmm. he looks so good. Like he knows how to, how to structure himself. Yeah. 
the way he faces off against Luke, it's effortless. Effortless the way he fights him back. So let's let's talk about the way that you the way that you compose yourself and the way that you look because building a structure and striking a pose is really part of the essence of movie making because movie sword fights are supposed to look good like that is pretty much its main job and oh you've mentioned that bob anderson sorry um sometimes <laughs> it's hard to put your finger on why a scene looks good or looks bad or why a fight looks sharp or looks sloppy and one of the key features is the stunt coordinator and the actors and the directors are blocking the right placing and they're building the right poses and the choreography is there to move the actors from moving to pose to pose in quick succession and what makes a good pose having the right pose is more than just moving a sword from point a to point b there's a principle in historical swordsmanship named by uh, the historical swordsmanship guru, Guy Windsor, that he calls structure. And an analog to structure applies here. And it's a matter of looking like your entire body, from the position of your feet to the center of your balance, the alignment of your hips, backs, arms, everything is committed to a singular purpose of having the blade in the exact place it is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. Put your body into proper alignment with good structure, and you look like a swordsman. Don't do that, and you look like a child with a willow switch. <laughs> and it's equally important that the camera is placed in the right place and the lighting is good. Uh, some mm. of these, these images that you pulled from Empire Strikes Back really, really illustrate that. Because you've got the characters in silhouette. I mean, there's almost no detail that you can see in Luke and Vader in a lot of this because the light's on the background and they're just black shapes, but they're these perfect silhouettes, black shapes that really emphasize how they're standing, how they're holding their weapons. And then you've got the brightness of the, the sabers against this bright, but hazy low detail background. Uh, you had the same thing in Pirates of the Caribbean where that whole scene, they were kicking up all the dirt uh, from the ground and although they're in this blacksmith shop that's got a lot of detail, a lot of stuff just hanging in the background, they hazed up the whole set so that the background kind of fades away and blurs out. And then they backlight the actors so that there's this rim, a bright rim around them. They're wearing dark costumes with this bright outline almost. It's, it almost looks like a uh, cartoon with this, this outline. They're wearing those gauzy sleeves where the light comes through and filters out and, and emphasizes their form. In contrast to that, you've got shots like, uh, and I'm actually going to pick on the Princess Bride here a little bit, because as gorgeous as the fight choreography was and as wonderful as the banter was, the lighting was not really very good in that scene. And I think one of the biggest problems was they dressed Inigo in these beige clothes. He's got this uh, homespun tunic and brown pants. And he's the same color as all of the rocks in that scene. And he just kind of disappears into the background sometimes. It's, it's hard to really see his silhouette very well. And if he really is a Spaniard, he should be much more ostentatiously dressed. Oh, right. You know, scarlet brocade. Peacock gold. feathers. Peacock feathers. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, just look at the quintessential Spaniard swordsman in Sean Connery in Highlander, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I... Um, I'm going to take a break. 
I'll be I'll be back in a little bit. <laughs> Tell me about this land, Scotland, because I've never been here before. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Speaking of films with great soundtracks. Anyway, no. <laughs> but with with all of those films that we've mentioned so far is that you've got people who know how to align their bodies and commit their entire bodies into their sword play rather than just making sure that their sword lands where it's supposed to. Yeah. And I think one of the better examples of capturing this in a dynamic, like it, you get the amazing still shots in the empire strikes back and it is phenomenally shot. I think that if you're talking about stunt coordination as a whole, the Phantom Menace does a really good job at giving these actors the bodily structure to make them look like they're actually doing something martially significant. Like Ewan McGregor and Ray Park have their whole bodies into this action, their feet, their shoulders, their back, their center of balance. Everything is about trying to kill that other guy. I think I remember no, in a documentary of Phantom Menace, it showed them in like their, their tank tops and sweatpants practicing the scene over and over and over again. And I think that they went through quite a few dozen practice swords <laughs> because of the intensity of their training and that they were putting into this fighting scene. And part of that is because their bodies were aligned and structured mm -hmm. to deliver the lightsaber where it was supposed to be. It's not just quick. It has everything there that they that it needs to be in order for it to be where it is. And unlike a real sword, those uh, lightsaber proxies were kind of designed to give out if you actually hit somebody with them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. They were designed to be props. Yeah. And that's good. I think we can contrast that lightsaber fight to what we see with how Adam Driver was directed and was trained to fight with the Kylo Ren versus Luke fight. Well, let's call that one for what it is. It's not a lightsaber fight. What we're witnessing is a lightsaber tantrum. <laughs> it's because his, you know, okay, this was part of the stylistic choice. It was supposed to be more, I think that the, the words that they use is it was supposed to be more primal in terms of just showing a, a brutality of how the fight was going and it was it was a stylistic choice mm -hmm. i just think that it was not a great aesthetic choice because his posture is just everywhere it is his feet his hips his shoulders the fact that in the picture you provided us as an example he also has his lightsaber in a reverse grip and I won't even touch that. anytime I see <laughs> a screen sword fight with someone with the reverse grip, half of my mind has already checked out. I think that it can be done well because it has to be right for the dramatic moment. And if it looks good, it doesn't have to be really practical with a sword. Now, you see somebody do that in an SCA practice, feel free to give them exactly what they deserve. I've done that to people who have emulated movie making in our SCA fights. There's a time and a place for bashing somebody with that, for that, and it's when you have a sword in your hand. <laughs> uh, this is not to say that you can't disrupt an actor's stance and posture and have it go well, though, because that can be done as, as good storytelling and good fight choreography. 
Have either of you seen the the Rob Roy sword fight? Oh yes, I just rewatched that one on somebody's advice. One of you two, probably both of us. <laughs> yeah, what's what's going on there? I mean, the, does Rob Roy look good? Does he have good structure, good posture? Is he all over the place, or is he, he has he, he got this landed? He starts out uh, looking good, but things change as the fight progresses. Whatever do you mean? Well, to set up the fight for our listeners who may not have seen Rob Roy. At the end of the movie, Rob Roy issues a challenge to a young aristocrat who has been set up as his enemy throughout it. Rob Roy, being a Scotsman of the 18th century persuasion, uh, comes into it with a a Scottish basket-hilt sword. Um, It's a good-sized weapon. It's got some weight to it. It's a big, meaty blade. Little Clevian Twain. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And although I think it's portrayed in the movie as a little heavier than they actually are. Because oh, swords in movies are are heavier than they ever yes. actually were. His opponent, on the other hand, being a an aristocrat, he has trained with the small sword. It is thinner, it is lighter, it is sharper, and it is faster. And it is as as shown in scenes earlier in the movie, this young man is deadly with it. He may be morally bankrupt, but with this small sword, he is a skilled killer. And so it comes to the fight. The two of them are settling their differences once and for all in an official duel in front of witnesses. When they go to choose their weapons, of course, Ponzi Boy picks the small sword. The hero, Rob Roy, picks himself a good basket hilt sword and starts off with uh, Rob Roy swinging for the fences. Swinging back and forth, big loops, powerful attacks, just like his father probably taught him. And his opponent, being younger, quicker, merely steps out of the way. Makes very little blade contact. Just to turn it aside here, push it there, and just keeps doing that, staying away until Rob Roy becomes getting more and more exhausted. Until he's having to use both arms, both hands to lift up this one-handed sword, and you can see the sweat on him. It's, his shirt is soaked with it. His kilt starting and the to... And blood. His he's blood. Been cut. He's been cut. He's been stabbed a little bit. He's wounded. He's hurting. And you're thinking, okay, he's the hero, but he's about to die. And in terms of reality... He should be dead any moment now. Spoiler alert, the movie was out, like, what, 20 years ago? Yeah. Uh, Finally, I should mention Rob Roy played wonderfully by Liam Neeson. So we're continuing the theme here from Star Wars (laughs) to Scottish history. And suddenly Sean Connery appears in the background going, Shari, I'm in the wrong movie. I'll just take my katana and leave. Yeah, get back to Braveheart where you belong. (laughs) (laughs) So Rob Roy has been cut. He's been hurt. He's exhausted. His opponent looks perfectly fine and has got him at the tip of his sword. You're thinking that this is it. It's done. Rob barely even has his, his weapon in his hand. His opponent looks away, looks at the witnesses very smugly, very arrogantly, proclaiming his victory before it's happened because in his mind there, were, there was no other outcome. And in that moment, Rob Roy reaches up with his left hand and grabs the blade. You see it instantly cuts him because you see blood begin to come down as he's holding it. And I've most people in SCA quarters have have watched this movie. And I've met some people who said, well, all his opponents should have done was just pulled his blade back. That would have cut off. Take one step backward, cut off all his fingers. Exactly. (laughs) The problem with that, though, is that we've actually tested this. They've never tested it with a sharp blade because I feel like keeping my digits. But he didn't just grab it. He didn't just grab it and try to hold on to it with just the power of his fingers. He applied torque. 
And once he did that, yeah, his hand was cut. But one, considering the weight class of his opponent, and two, how strong Rob Roy is, and the torque that he put on there, there was nothing his opponent could do. Well, there were things that his opponent could do, but at that point, what happened is that once he realized that his opponent realized he no longer had control of his blade, his opponent had a moment of panic. And in that moment, Rob Roy reached down, picked up his sword, raised it up, and just about cleaved the man in half. So the breaking of structure and him getting sloppy was just great drama building and great storytelling because as you're watching it all your hope is dying in bits and pieces as you're watching him grow more tired none of his attacks are fruitful he's getting sweaty he's getting hurt he's getting slow until by the time he's on his knees with a sword at his throat you've lost all hope along with him and i think we see similar things with uh, luke skywalker at the end of the empire strikes back after he's been hit with a few crates and thrown out a window and and nearly falls into the abyss, his ability to use the lightsaber is somewhat diminished. I mean, it's you realize that he has lost control of the situation. He gets tired, he gets sloppy, and it, it lets you see who's winning and who's losing. Mm-hmm. So structure is important, both how you use it and how you break it. I feel like I've been talking a lot. Does anybody want to introduce the next section? I just went on a unintended Rob Roy rant, so... Technically, it's Brian's turn. Okay. Well, uh, every strike needs to count. Um, Both while you're actually fighting, you don't want to ever swing with the intention of missing unless it's, you know, a light feint. But in in terms of storytelling, every time somebody swings one of those blades, during the, the fight, the swinging of the blades is your dialogue. It's what's driving the story forward. And one of the... The problems is if you're not terribly clever when you're shooting, it looks like you're not actually trying to target their body as a whole. It looks like you're just trying to touch the opponent's sword, which, I mean, which is exactly what you're trying to do. You're just trying to touch their sword and not touch their body. But you want to create the illusion that the only thing that keeps that sword from coming into lethal contact is the other person putting their force behind blocking that blow. And again, the Phantom Menace does a pretty darn good job of this. Mm -hmm. If you're looking really close, you can see where they're aiming to miss, that they're standing like just a little bit out of range where they could actually hit the other actor. But they do a good job of creating the illusion that this thing is actually going to hit Obi-Wan Kenobi. Obi-Wan Kenobi, put it behind your back before it. Oh, good. All right. No, you need to block your face. Oh, good. Thank goodness, Obi-Wan Kenobi. I was really scared for you for just a second. Yeah, way to listen to the force. (laughs) (laughs) The Princess Bride on this is actually kind of, as much as I absolutely love this sword fight, in terms of making their shots look like it's actually going to hit the other person, this film is kind of hit and miss. Mm Mm-hmm. I look at this sword fight as this is the pinnacle of Bob Anderson sword fighting. Let me explain. Some of the earliest examples are in the Errol Flynn Robin Hood movies. I think he also did Captain Blood. It wasn't uh, Bob Anderson, but it was someone who he trained with extensively, uh, Basil Rathbun, who did most of the uh, sword fight uh, training for Danny Kaye's The Court Jester which I'm glad I was able to sneak in a court jester reference in this podcast because (laughs) the court jester should always be referenced. Currently free on Amazon Prime. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But 
when you watch these sword fights, part of the fun of them is the banter and uh, how quickly they go. But they're not fighting with how swords that thin and small should be fighting with them. And there's a lot of hit the weapon, not the person. And it kind of evolves as the years go by until we reach the Princess Bride, where it's not all they do, but they do a lot of it. It's, yeah, it's something that they, they talk about as, that's sometimes called flinning, which is where you're just moving the sword around really, really fast to touch the other person's blade. And it, it, it can be well choreographed. I, I think it works better in The Princess Bride than it did in Errol Flynn's Robin Hood, where you have like an arming sword or what you might think of as a broadsword. And they're using it the same way as they used rapiers, or they might use a fencing foil. And it's like, these are different weapons, you know, do do something else with it. But I, I think it was not so egregious. It was, uh, but it was, there is a little bit of flinning mm. going on in The Princess Bride. And I'm going to admit that when I first decided to give SCA rapier fighting a try, this was a time when predominantly a lot of people were still using epes. Many people had made the transition over to full rapiers, but epes were still commonly found. And the epe was what I started with. And these were the movies that I, the only reference I had to this style of sword fighting. So facing off my opponent, I did a little bit of flinning because when you, you have a, when you have a blade that light, it's easy to do. So you tapped their blade and got slapped in the face? Uh, not slapped in the face, but... Uh, I thought, like, I'm just going to, you know, constantly move it around, constantly move my blade around. It kept me from being stabbed some, but it, <laughs> by constantly doing that also means that you're not really able to go on the tack either. Yeah, I think that having that sort of unnecessary blade movement really gets to what I think is one of the most egregious bad examples of not making your shot count is when you see people on screen that are just spinning their blades near each other. Yeah. And this drives me absolutely nuts in Revenge of the Sith when Obi-Wan and Anakin <laughs> are standing like toe-to-toe oh, toe. and a half from each other, just, yeah, toe-to-toe, toe, spinning their blades. Like, okay, this is an acrobatics routine, guys. Yeah, like, what's I, happening here? <laughs> I, in, in that scene, I half expected after they, they spin back and forth when they're two inches away and they stop. And you start to see limbs hit the ground. (laughs) 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 Cut off the fingers, arms, legs, everything. They just fall apart. And then the credits. And or maybe as soon, you know, just before they do that, they release the bees. Like, ah, bees, bees, bees. So on that that topic of just strangely whipping the blades around to no uh, apparent effect. Have you seen uh, First Night with Richard Gere? Oh, so many oh, years, years ago. ago. Yeah. I rewatched the fight scene just so I can know what you were talking about here. <laughs> I thought about it, but then I decided I don't want to. <laughs> I'm okay with not revisiting this movie. But it's, it's Sean Connery again. We've got to bring him in. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot. I brought him in once. That's all he gets. <laughs> well, no, Sean Connery's here. You know what, fine, bring Sean Connery again. Richard Gere is where I draw the line, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I, I, first I started watching the scene again. I'm like, okay, yeah, this is pretty standard Hollywood sword fighting. Okay, yeah, that's fine. It's not exciting. It's not fine. Oh, he gets the sword. I, was it supposed to be Excalibur or something? I, something Uh, I don't know. But why does Excalibur look like every other sword that everyone has? 
I do yeah, remember that it, much. It, do you know what? It doesn't matter because on screen it was magical and it was in his hand. And then the magic happens where Greer was extremely good at moving the blade from point A to point B very quickly while making it all bizarrely incomprehensible on screen. Like the sword was moving fast. And I actually watched this like slow motion. I think that they actually were trimming out frames to make it go so fast. But I remember seeing it on screen, and and my first thought was, okay, so does holding Excalibur mean that your voltage is doubled? Because that's what he looks like. He looks like he's being mildly electrocuted by the sword. You know, it's one of those things that fast doesn't make it better. Oh, Uh, absolutely not. They actually ran into that problem in The Princess Bride. Uh, I read (laughs) in the memoir that... Carrie always had written about being on the set of that movie that they had been practicing that for months. It was the very last thing that they had filmed. The problem is the actors got so good at the routine that what was supposed to be a, I don't know, five to seven minute fight was over in like two minutes and 30 seconds. And they're like, (laughs) oh, crud, what do we do? That's it? And so they actually had to put things into the scene to draw it out, which is why you get some of those flips and the... I was going to say, is that why we get the acrobatics? Yes, yes it is, and it was wonderful. So, Um, Richard Gere and Excalibur, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was bizarrely incomprehensible. So. I think now we move on to what is really Brian's wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right, the topic of actually capturing the action, making sure it looks good. Yeah, the the direction and the stunt coordination, the rehearsal is really important because I mean, if you're if you're not practicing it right, if you're just going in and saying, "Okay, well we have this this notion of how we want this this scene to go, how we want these shots to go." If it's not planned, they teach us in film school that you plan your shoot and then you shoot your plan. Uh and I think <laughs> a lot of uh a lot of recent filmmakers have skipped the planning phase and they say, oh, we'll, we'll, get, we'll figure it out on set. And that kind of shows when you get sloppy routines and things like uh, we've mentioned The Last Jedi where stuntmen step in front of the camera. It's like, well, you know, if you had choreographed your camera placement, you, you taught your stuntmen where they're supposed to stand, then this whole scene would make a lot more mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, I think that, uh, that The Last Jedi... You know, and, and it's one of the things I want to make it clear that I'm not I'm not going to bash the film as a whole, and because there's a lot of I will of Star Wars. Bashing. You can <laughs> do that. That's Tag good. me in, man. No, I'm kidding. Go ahead. Well, I mean, I'm not kidding, no, but please ignore me. Go ahead. <laughs> no, I get it. I get it. But I mean, there's a lot of Star Wars bashing going on, and you know, and people rending their clothes of Star Wars as this, that, or the other. That's not what I'm doing here. I I, I do want to take a good hard look at this throne room scene where we have the throne room fight because yeah because what you should have had was a firm handshake between what brian was talking about earlier about the princess bride and having that structure and having a a firm handshake between the way that you dress dress the scene or you dress the uh, the the set and the choreography working seamlessly with the cinematography and it just wasn't there. I mean, you. there are a lot of things that you can do to make a shot look good, but it takes a lot of planning. And in the last Jedi fight scene, 
uh, unfortunately, we see a stunt man at one point realize that he has, he, I'm assuming he, that they have missed their mark. Then, like, they're coming down with their attack, and they realize that either they've missed their mark or Daisy Ridley has missed her mark. And so what he does is he has a clear shot for her head, but you don't want to hit her head. So what he does is he shifts the line of his attack, goes way up, and then spins out of, uh, spins out of the way. Like, that should have been cut. Because all a stuntman did in the foreground is walk up, spin, and then walk back. At that uh, point, it has less to do with a lightsaber fight and more to do with WWE wrestling. <laughs> I mean, there are other times in that where stuntmen were blocking the view as to what the hero was supposed to be doing. You have Adam Driver at one point stopping and waiting about three seconds while we have stuntmen walking into frame in order for him to continue their fight. Like there are a lot of things here where if you had just planned where people are standing and what they're supposed to be doing and practice that through the vision of what's going on through the lens, then this fight could have been mm. so much better than what it was. This, this fight hurt to watch. From a practical sword fighting standpoint, it hurt to watch. Yes, I realize that they're magical space knights with a uh, super mysterious energy field guiding their destiny. But <laughs> there were so many times that I looked at what was happening in the fight and said, and now Ray's dead. And Ray's dead again. Oh, now Kylo's dead. Now Ray's dead again. Because, like you said, they were only saved by hesitant stunt performers, poor blocking, and the fact that people were missing their marks or starting them too quickly. And by a mark, it's another technical term we mean. It's part of the blocking. A mark is the time from which you take your action from a specific point. But there was so much of that in this fight, which was served as like a centerpiece to the movie. Ray and Kylo joining forces against an overwhelming enemy. And it looked like a convoluted, poorly blocked mess. I mean, it showed that her plot armor was so thick, it literally could even be cut by a lightsaber. <laughs> I, you know, with the fighting style not being practical isn't something that, that so much bothers me, because most movie sword fighting to me does not look practical mm -hmm. at all. And I realize it's hard to call it practical sword fighting when we're dealing with laser swords, but there is a standard, I believe, that can be applied to how you're supposed to move and how you're supposed to use a weapon, and... Usually when you're engaged, when you're up against six opponents and you've got your weapon engaged with one of them, two are coming from one side, three are coming at you from another, you're dead. <laughs> As someone who has fought in melees dozens and dozens of times, I can take on one person. I can take on two people for a little while. Three, that's stretching it. Four more, I'm dead. Well, and, but the thing is our action heroes do this all the time. The difference there is usually you can keep your focus on the action hero. I think I've seen a, a couple of scenes from, I haven't seen the film, but John Wick, where you have the focus on him and he's always doing something. He's always moving. He's always doing something dynamic. And you're only catching what is going on with him and the person or people with whom he is engaged. Yeah. But it's always an engagement and it's always but moving forward. But, and they've blocked it well. Like, if you probably stood back and watched on a camcorder, you know, it, it would be clear that, oh, if you're surrounded by this many people, this guy's dead. Well, I guess where I was going with what I was saying about melee fighting and several opponents is that 
In the real world, can it be done? Not really, no. But this is the fantasy world. But I'm saying, and it's going back to doing it properly, is that if you're going to make it believable that these heroes have the ability to go through these enemies, you've got to get it right. You've got to have the choreography right to make it look good and look clean. Otherwise, it's going to be a mess, and it's going to be brought up on Three Dudes Podcast as a bad example. (laughs) (laughs) Well... And from my, I mean, I don't really know all that much about combat. From my uneducated viewpoint, the fight is almost completely unintelligible. There's too much going on simultaneously. And I don't know who who made the decision to have a room with a red backdrop and then put all of the antagonists in red armor. I mean, you can't... But at least there wasn't the time for you, a different... Co- oh, wait. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You can't tell where anybody is in this scene, and there's so many of them moving in so many different directions. Because Star Wars has established that red is the bad guy color, and we're we're going to really lean into it for this scene. What we need again is Anakin and Obi-Wan. Oh, bees, bees, bees. Sorry. (laughs) Well, and on the topic of fighting six people at once, remember that you've got that cinematic trope of the conservation of ninjutsu. There's there's only so much ninjutsu you can have in any given fight, and it's evenly divided between the two sides. So if you've got more guys on one side, they all get a little bit slower and dumber. It's just they've got to spread that ninjutsu out amongst all of them. This actually gets brought up in the webcomic Dr. McNinja. (laughs) It is scientifically proven that if you're fighting against one opponent, you may not come out of it. But... A person fighting against multiple opponents, they will suddenly become bumbling, poor, and uncoordinated, and you will become a superstar and will remain untouched. Yeah, it's, it's physics. Yes, exactly. <laughs> One last point on capturing the action. I didn't put it into the notes, but I, I did do some research on the Phantom of the Opera when I was putting some of this together. The, the guy who played Raul actually was supposed to be a really good stage fencer, and they brought in a trained stunt coordinator or stunt actor to play the Phantom because uh, the Phantom didn't have that skill set and it was better to bring somebody else in rather than train him. And as far as I know, it was probably a brilliantly choreographed fight. But for some reason, the camera kept moving around so you never really could see exactly (laughs) what was going on. So this really has to be a, a sort of firm handshake between choreography and cinematography and the cinematographer really i think probably what happens is the cinematographer is not included in the conversation about the choreography these Mm. hollywood has this problem of they they segregate their their departments and cinematographers uh some cinematographers have this issue where they get to decide where the camera is going to be and nobody else is allowed to tell them anything different even though the visual effects supervisor says, well, yeah, if you shoot it that way, then we can't do the effect. And the fight choreographers are saying, well, yeah, but if you shoot it at that, shoot it that way, the audience isn't going to be able to tell what's going on. And the cinematographer says, I'm in charge of the camera. Hmm. And so you got to, I think it's, it's a matter of, of communication between those two departments. If the cinematographer, if the, the stunt choreographer says, okay, where do you want to set the camera so that we can choreograph this thing so it'll look great? then the cinematographer is not trying to defend his ego so much. And I, I'm not saying that that's exactly what happened or that it happens all the time, but I know it has happened because I've dealt with that on the visual effects side from time to time. Makes a lot of sense. It's funny because you, you mentioned that, and I, 
I actually do some small bit of that myself when I'm prepping for weddings is that I talk to the photographer and I, mm-hmm. whenever we're doing the prep, I try to talk to the photographer like, okay, you want to capture this. Here's what I have set up and here's how we've, we've marked this out. What do you suggest just to make sure that when we capture this on screen, what am I missing? So this will look good, you know, when they, you know, in their photo albums 20 years from now. So, and wedding uh, photographers tend to have that same issue of there's an ego there. And if you can placate the ego, you'll get better results. You know, for a split second, Mike, I thought you were going to say, at weddings, I talk to the bride. I tell her, okay, you're going to stand here. You're going to walk <laughs> up this way. Remember, sweetheart, this is my show. You're just a guest in it. <laughs> I've seen worse things happen. Yeah, so have I. So egos getting um, in the way of production in Hollywood, man, that shocks me. I never really I'm, I'm, I'm shocked. I say, <laughs> who knew? <laughs> so, the last one that we have cannot emphasize this enough: practice, practice, practice. Mm. And we've talked about this a little bit, but uh, and I'm not going to lie, I put this element in here so I could talk a little bit about one of my favorite movie sword fights. Have I mentioned The Princess Bride? And how you much have I not, which thing? surprises me, Mike. Please uh, tell us more about Princess Bride. They, they started the sword fight scenes with Bob Anderson well before shooting started uh, and at the beginning of, of the production. And the two actors involved would always, when they, you know, when they called cut and everybody else was taking a break, these two were practicing their routine. They were going at it left-handed and right-handed. All of that was, there was no movie magic. They just practiced it over and over again. And it was the very last thing that they filmed so that these two would be so good. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the things that makes it one of the best movie sword fights that we've had in our in our lifetime. And I think that that's also the reason why the majority of the sword fighting is was so good in the Lord of the Rings movies. It just wasn't a rehearsal time. The company and Bob Anderson was putting all of the fellowship and more into like a sword fighting camp that they had to attend while shooting was going on. And everybody was getting it. Now, mostly it focused on like Aragorn, Legolas, and even Gimli to an extent. But even the hobbits I saw were were getting sword fighting training. And I remember in an interview, Sam or Sean Astin was really enjoying the sword fighting training and working really hard at it when he discovered that he really wasn't going to get to do any at all. He was bummed because and he said, interview like, I'm really bummed out. No one's going to know how good I'm getting at this sword thing. Yeah, I think they said, like, uh, Sean, you realize that you're playing a hobbit. Uh, if one of the ring rays were to try to fight you, you would not be capable of moving their blade. Yeah, they swung at you, you'd go sailing off into left field, which I, I think he actually does in the movie, now yeah. that I think on it. <laughs> right. But I think that it's movies like uh, The Lord of the Rings and The Phantom Menace that have really raised the bar of our expectation or at least I think that they're probably following in a tradition of a raised bar, because uh, I know these aren't movie sword fights, but if you take a look at the fight scenes in The Fifth Element and The Matrix, they're like night and day, and I don't think that it's the choreography of the fights. In The Matrix, everything that they do looks crisp and clear, 
Uh, the Fifth Element was lauded as having a great fight scene in its day, but by today's standards, it looks a little less certain and a little bit slower in comparison with retrospect. And the difference was the months of training that they put into with the Matrix. Mm -hmm. And the same thing shows with the Phantom Menace, the Princess Bride. The, these people worked hard to make it to, to make it right. You, and it you, shows. You've mentioned uh, John Wick a couple of times, and there are videos out there of how deeply Keanu Reeves trained himself for this role. He jumped into gun training with a passion, and it shows him on live gun courses doing three-weapon training, which world-class shooters and military will train on uh, with pistol, rifle, and shotgun. And some of the videos I've seen of him, he is competing at a whole nother level. That's how deeply he trained for the role of John Wick for all of the John Wick movies and how serious he took it. His reaction time, his aim, his point control, his skill, you see it in these YouTube clips. It's amazing. You think that you're watching somebody who is training for a world championship shooting event. And, yeah, that type of familiarity and practice shows. It's one of the reasons why when they were shooting The Mandalorian, they had three Mandalorians. They had actors that were dedicated to the specifically to the brawling element and one that was dedicated entirely to the shooting elements. I mean, it was a pretty easy thing. You put them in the same costume with the same build and the same mask. <laughs> And you get to triple the amount of experience that you bring into the role. Interesting. I didn't know that. Neither did I. You mean it's all not Pedro Pascal? I'm sad now. Well, <laughs> I'm not. It looked fabulous. <laughs> I'm joking. They did what they had to do to make it look wonderful. And that shows taking the character seriously. Well, where does that leave us, gentlemen? At the end I of think our it leaves us with, Yeah, which I think really just kind of barely scratched the surface of these wonderful, dramatic, cinematic elements that we love and cherish so much. And if you like what you heard, let us know. If you think we missed something, which we did, there's a lot that we even trimmed out, uh, let us know. Like, jump on Twitter. Tell us what was your favorite movie sword fight. You think I, uh, I missed the mark? Please do share, because I love mm -hmm. to hear about your passions. To be honest, I kind of want to do a movie sword fight film club. <laughs> where we take a look at three movies that have had, we think, the best sword fights in them. I think we just did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Twitter has, has definitely responded to this to this question of what, what is your favorite movie sword fight? And I think it's glorious. Do you want to read any for the podcast? Uh, let's see. Sure. Uh, Infinity Bros. Duel of Fates is the best Star Wars lightsaber battle. Fight me. Like... Um, seriously, dude, I've got toy lightsabers. Let's, uh, that sounds like a blast. Let's do this. But anyway, that aside. Um, and I asked a bit more question. What does best mean? He says best score of any Star Wars fight sequence. Maybe the second best choreographed fight grouped with Darth Maul being an epic villain and a double bladed lightsaber makes it the best in parentheses, Star Wars lightsaber battle in parentheses in my eyes. Yeah, I think we've said. I don't think that we mentioned the double-bladed saber, but that was actually a wonderful dramatic element, and or at least a visual element. Uh, we have a number of our friends that have echoed some of the things we've pointed out. Redeemed Otaku, two words, she says. Rob Roy. a girl. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Gregory Oswald. 
Also, the changes in Star Wars fights over the decades as they updated. Yeah. I, I think that's an episode in itself because there's so many stylistic changes that were implemented for a variety of reasons. But yeah, keep it coming. And yeah, we'd love to hear what you think. Well, guys, I think that'll wrap up our look at movie sword fights, real sword fighting, and the compares and contrasts between them. And I think that will lead us to the zombie apocalypse plan of the week. Mike? Oh, sorry. Oh, no, no, it's Sorry, not. we just had, we had us we had one sneak on in. David from Enthusiast said maybe Geek at Arms uh, should enter the lightsaber choreography contest. Is this a thing? Gentlemen, we need to make this happen, even if it's not. <laughs> I feel like this is actually a thing, though. Like, there's... Because I know that there are martial art groups out there who make lightsaber combat their field of study. Yeah, I actually have done some sessions with the Boston Lightsaber Theatrical Combat Club. And they I like are wonderful. everything about that name. Elizabeth Gaines just came in and says, you cannot talk about sword fights without including the Princess Bride. You are correct. Yes. Sorry, I said Elizabeth. It's Elizabeth. Sorry. Oh. <laughs> anyway, correction. But anyway, I think that does take us mm -hmm. to... Oh, but Ooh. wait. I'm going to interrupt as well. Uh -oh. You and myself. <laughs> but wait, there's more. Yes. Uh, we talked a couple of times about a, a gentleman named Guy Windsor. And that's a name that has popped up on this podcast more than once. Guy Windsor is a Western uh, martial arts enthusiast, um, swordsman, an instructor, a researcher, a writer. Uh, he's written several manuals about swords, long swords, spears, daggers. Mike, I think you've got one of his dagger books, if not more. Um, I've got books of his as well. And I meant to bring this up on my geek out, but Guy Windsor has also started his own podcast. It is appropriately called The Sword Guy Podcast. He's got about five episodes online already so if you like sword fighting if you like hearing people talk about sword fighting go check it out his latest episode deals with lightsabers rapiers and historic swordsmanship go check it out that's my final plug well if it involves lightsabers and historical swordsmanship i'm in yes. okay <laughs> so zombie apocalypse plan of the week time yeah this week i think that uh, your best plan really is to choose your party wisely and to choose your equipment wisely, which means you need to partner up with Enico Montoya and uh, <laughs> make sure that uh, you help him out by giving him your father's lightsaber. That will never go dull. <laughs> now I'm imagining Physic, Enigo, and Vicini trying to make their way through a zombie apocalypse. <laughs> The smell of freshly lightsabered zombie just does not make me want to entertain that anymore. Fair enough. Well, that's going to wrap it up for us. Thanks for listening in. Please check us out online at geekatarms.com, at Facebook at facebook.com slash geekatarms. And Mike, what is our Twitter handle? We are ArmsGeek. You can also find us on the Google Play Store and on iTunes. Subscribe and leave us a review if you would. Let us know how we're doing. So from Brian, Mike, and James... Be safe, be blessed, and be geeky. Thanks for listening to Geek at Arms. Music for this podcast was provided by Incompetech.com. For more, check us out at Facebook.com forward slash Geek at Arms. Give us a like and maybe even subscribe to us on iTunes. That would be awesome.